It is so great to see you all up here and to hear you, and we are looking forward to more of that in the weeks and months to come. And it's good to see each and every one of you uh, here today. Um, a little, little raining going on over here. Uh, so in today's passage, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark 8, in today's passage, we have this moment that really is the hinge upon which all of Mark's gospel hangs. Way back when, in the first sermon of this series, it was entitled, Who is Jesus? And we talked about Mark's purpose in writing his gospel, that he was going to tell us who Jesus was right in the beginning, right at the first verse, and then the rest of the gospel, he was going to present proofs. He was going to unpack these stories to show us who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God who came as the suffering servant to save us from our sins. And so, right in in Mark 1.1, he answers the question at the very beginning. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Mark uses this statement to really structure his entire gospel. The first half of the gospel, Mark is focused on Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, which is why Peter's confession we're going to look at today is the climax of this first half of the gospel. But from this moment on till the end, Mark is presenting to us proofs and explaining to us what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, that He is the Son of God who came to suffer and die for our sins. And that culminates in another confession, that of the Roman centurion who looks at Jesus on the cross and says, Truly this man was the Son of God. Those two confessions, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, are what the Gospel of Mark is organized around. So far in Mark's Gospel, it seems like only the demons know Jesus' true identity as the Christ. They're the only ones so far that have referred to Him as the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus always commands them to be silent when they say this. But today, Peter, speaking on behalf of the Twelve, will be the first person recorded in Mark's Gospel to say that Jesus is the Christ. And from this moment on, Mark is going to direct our attention to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus will always be on the way, heading towards the cross. But today I want us to examine this seminal moment for Peter and the Twelve and Jesus' response. Because they reveal to us not only what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, but what it means for us to be His disciples. What it means for us to follow Jesus the Christ. We, we, this sermon series has been called Walking with Jesus. So we've been walking with Jesus through Mark. But what does it take for us to walk with Jesus through life? So let's begin by looking at Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So the first thing that we see it takes to follow Jesus is that we must personally confess who Jesus is. Notice that Mark says they were on the way to Caesarea Philippi, that phrase, on the way, will occur nine times in Mark 8 through 12. Again, emphasizing 
Jesus' intentionality, Jesus' urgency, that He is on the way, always moving towards Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that Jesus begins this final journey to the cross here at Caesarea Philippi. You'll see it up there underlined in red, way up above the Sea of Galilee. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's on the very northern edge of Israel's territory. New Testament scholar David McKenna described Caesarea Philippi as the place where gods are born and made. In ancient times, even before the children of Israel conquered the Promised Land, it was called Belinus because it was known for Baal worship. That was the god, the god of Baal. They worshipped there. But after the Greeks conquered this area, they declared the cave there at Caesarea Philippi as the birthplace of Pan. Pan was the god of nature. Remember, he had the the legs of a a goat, and played the the flute, right? Pan. And they said that's where Pan was born. And out of that cave were some of the headwaters of the Jordan River flowed from that. So certainly you could imagine why they would say that would be the birthplace of the God of nature because the Jordan River is what brought life to the land of Israel. And so the city became known as Panias, not Belinus, but Panias. And today, interestingly enough, it's known as Benias. So it kind of, they took the, the bell and the pan and they've combined it and it's known as Panias today. But in Jesus' day, it was Caesarea Philippi. It was built by Herod uh, Philip and he built it for Caesar and he built it uh, to be a tribute to Caesar and there was a temple to Caesar and there was uh, a temple to Pan and a temple to Zeus and, and all of this. So by forcing the disciples to declare whom they believed him to be here, Jesus was making a direct challenge on the pagan gods of the Canaanites and the Greeks and the Romans. He was making a challenge against the wealth and power and might of the Roman Empire because if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then all other so-called gods and all rulers and kings and empires and armies must someday bow the knee to Him. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the location of this confession was intentional, but even more so was the way Jesus directed this conversation. Notice the progressive nature of these questions. And some people have even noticed a parallel between the way Mark records this conversation and the way he recorded the miracle we looked at last week, right? So Mark begins both of those passages, if you look at verse 27 and compare it to to verse 22, both begin with a statement of the location of where they are. Remember, Jesus first gave the man partial sight, which parallels the partial understanding of the crowds who think that Jesus is Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. But then Jesus fully restored the blind man's sight so he could see clearly. That's paralleled with Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And then both sections end with Jesus commanding them to be silent. So let's dive in deeper to this story. And let's look at that first question. The first question is, who do people say Jesus is? Jesus is asking the disciples to reveal what they've heard from the crowds. And and really, faith often begins 
with what we hear from others, doesn't it? I mean, that's where all of our faith journeys began because we saw other people set the example for us. We heard other people share their testimony. We had family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, somebody shared the gospel with us. We heard them tell us who Jesus is. That's how we learn, by watching and listening to others, maybe a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. And the disciples' answer recalls what King Herod had said earlier in Mark chapter 6. Herod commented that he had heard people say that Jesus was John the Baptist come back alive, which really bothered Herod because Herod's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. Or that Jesus was Elijah come back. Or Jesus was like one of the prophets of old. The people saw Jesus much like that blind man first saw things. Blurry, fuzzy, unfocused incomplete. But at least they recognized the source of Jesus' miracles and His influence. At least they were recognizing that there was a God-given authority behind His teachings. But Jesus is so much more than just a great preacher like John or a great miracle worker like Elijah or a great teacher like one of the prophets. Such comparisons to these heroes of Israel's past Yes, they revealed the the prominence that Jesus held in the minds of the people, but those comparisons fall short. People today make the same mistake. People today largely have a very positive view of Jesus. They like Jesus today. People do. But they want Jesus to be a great teacher like Confucius or the Dalai Lama or Oprah. That's what they want. They want to lift Jesus up like this moral example of self-sacrificial service, of forgiving and not judging, of loving, loving your neighbor and being good and kind and taking care of people. But the anointed one of God, the Son of God, that's a little much for them to swallow. But Jesus himself doesn't settle for comparisons like this. As James Edwards explains, to merely compare Jesus with great teachers and moral examples, he says, is ultimately to deny his uniqueness and press him into the service of old categories. He compares it to pouring new wine into old wineskins. He goes on to say, the authority that Jesus has demonstrated throughout Mark's narrative does not allow him to be defined by something other than himself and his relationship with the Father. So if we simply rely on what other people say about Jesus, we're also opening ourselves up to a blurry, incomplete, not quite right picture of Jesus. Because you can't ride into heaven on someone else's coattail. You can't come to know Jesus secondhand. It has to be firsthand. It has to be personal, which is why Jesus presses the disciples with the second question, which is when we all must consider, who do I say Jesus is? Again, this question echoes an earlier passage. After Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples wondered among themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's one thing to evaluate what other people believe about Jesus, but that's not enough. It's not enough just to know what others say about him. We must answer for ourselves, who do I say Jesus is? Who is he to me? Is Jesus just a great teacher? Like John or one of the prophets? Was Jesus just a mighty man of God like Joshua or Samuel or Elisha? Or is Jesus the Son of God? 
The Word made flesh. The one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created and are held together. Is Jesus just one way to God? Or is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved? Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question. Not only of Mark's Gospel, but all the Gospels. All of Scripture. And it's a question that everyone must answer. We will either answer that question in this life or standing before the judgment seat of God. We will all have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And Peter answers on behalf of the twelve, you are the Christ. Now Matthew gives the longer version of this. that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Mark purposely leaves that last part off again. Remember, he's saving that for the Roman centurion's confession. So he just records the first part, you are the Christ. Mark also excludes... Jesus' praise of Peter for this confession. In Matthew 16, Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, why do you think Mark excludes this? Well, remember, Mark is likely writing his gospel from Peter's recollections, right? Mark is friends with Peter, so Peter is sharing these stories. I like to think that maybe Peter was showing a little bit of humility here. So Peter either didn't mention this part to Mark or asked Mark not to include it. But what's interesting is that Mark does include Jesus' rebuke of Peter. So it doesn't include the praise, but he includes the rebuke, which again I think is another example of Peter's humility here. But let's think briefly, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? The Greek word Christ is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. Those words are interchangeable, and no, it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Both of those words mean the Anointed One. That's what that means. We have to understand that in the Old Testament, in the Jewish religion, there were three offices to which you could be ordained, anointed. And that was prophet, priest, or king. Now, in the 400 years between Malachi in the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, that 400-year period, we call that the intertestamental period, the people of Israel began to develop this idea of a Messiah. They began to, to look for this anointed one who would be the fulfillment of all three of those offices. He would fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies of the one who would come like King David, the son of David who would be king. He would rule from Jerusalem, not only over Israel, but over all the world. He would restore the land and the temple to the people and bring the scattered sheep of God home. This Messiah would also be the ultimate prophet, the prophet like Moses, who would come and inscribe the laws of God on people's hearts. And he would be the forever priest who would always mediate the relationship between God and men. That was the Messiah. He would be prophet, priest, and king. And to the Jews of Jesus' day, those who believed in a literal Messiah, they were looking for him to be a military leader. Someone who would overthrow Rome and set up his rule and reign in Jerusalem over all the world. So even though it seems like Peter's vision is crystal clear when he says, you are the Christ, we soon learn the disciples still had a blurry, incomplete vision of what it meant 
for Jesus to be the Christ. In other words, Peter got the job title right, but he gets the job description wrong. Or as uh, Edwards goes on to explain, the disciples didn't yet understand that Jesus will don the servant's towel rather than the warrior's sword. He will practice sacrifice, not vengeance. He will not inflict suffering, but will suffer himself as a ransom for many. And this is why Jesus commands them to be silent about this, because they don't yet understand what this means. And again, this also ties into this location. Very near Caesarea Philippi, a generation before, a Jewish man led a revolt against Rome. And as you can imagine, it failed miserably. A lot of people died. But out of this revolt came the modern day, or the, the, at the time of Jesus, the zealot movement. So the zealots were the fourth kind of group in Judaism, and it grew out of that. And the zealots believed the Messiah would come with the sword, and it would inflict great suffering and death on the Gentiles. And so Jesus didn't want people in this volatile region to try to force him to be their king or to try to rise up against Rome. Jesus had a different mission, a different method. And now it was time to reveal that mission and method to his closest friends. Jesus here gives the proper job description to go with the title. Or again, as McKenna powerfully described this moment, he said, it was like a raindrop falling on the continental divide. Now, we, we, on our trip, we stopped at the Continental Divide. It was almost 11,000 feet. And it was pretty cool. You stand right there and you know that everything on this side is going to go into the Atlantic and everything on that side is going to go into the Pacific or the, into the Atlantic or the Gulf or into the Pacific. It's pretty neat. And McKenna says that that's what this confession is like. But rather, Peter's answer to Jesus' question divides itself between the who of the first half of Mark and the how of the second half of Mark. So we see that to follow Jesus, we have to confess who Jesus is. But secondly, we have to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. So Jesus goes on in verse 31. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus waited until this moment, this confession, this revelation from God to the disciples that Jesus was the long-awaited, promised and prophesied Messiah, the anointed one of God. He waited till this moment to speak plainly to them about the events that would transpire in Jerusalem, about His betrayal, His arrest, His crucifixion, and His resurrection. Jesus wanted the disciples to understand what kind of kingdom He was coming to establish. It wasn't a political one. It wasn't one of military might. Yes, Jesus would fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. Yes, Jesus did come to save His people, but from something far greater than Rome. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But Peter didn't understand this. And so he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Wow. Peter rebuked Jesus. I mean, I know Peter was a little gutsy. I know Peter would often leap before he looked and often had to put his foot in his mouth. But to rebuke the Christ? At least he pulled him aside first, right? I mean, 
At least he did that. And, and we'll get to this in just a moment, but first let's consider how little we understand the cost to Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus said that he must suffer many things. Have you ever really thought about all that Jesus suffered for us? Jesus suffered the rejection and misunderstanding of his family and friends. The Jewish religious leaders continually discounting and not trusting his teaching and his miracles, even attributing them to the devil. Jesus suffered hunger and thirst and fatigue. And he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. John in chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was in the world and that the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And then he was betrayed, abandoned, arrested and falsely accused. He was beaten and mocked and tortured and died in excruciating, humiliating public death. As Paul describes in Philippians 2, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we see that word cross, we see the word crucified. We often don't really understand what all that involved, how horrific it was, but the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. It was something to be endured. Scorning its shame, it was a shameful way to die. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He tells us, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus revealed all this to the disciples so they could see Him and His mission clearly. He wanted them to understand. He pulled back the curtain and revealed this divine plan from eternity past so they would not grow weary and lose heart. And we also should consider the opposition that Jesus suffered at the hands of sinners so we won't grow weary and lose heart. Because Jesus goes on later in John 15 to tell the disciples and to tell us that if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they had obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So listen, if the world today misunderstands who Jesus was and is and what He came to do, don't you think they're going to misunderstand us? They will attribute our beliefs, our motives, our good works to evil, just as they did Jesus. I mean, if people today want Jesus to be this Oprah-like, permissive, guru who would be more than glad to pick up the pride flag and march in the parade for the LGBTQ agenda, if that's the Jesus that they believe in, then we shouldn't be surprised when they hate and persecute us. Because that is not who we say Jesus is. That is not who Jesus Himself says He is. Which is why Jesus utters such a harsh rebuke 
Notice the rebuke that Jesus utters here. First, he utters it to Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan was using Peter to once again tempt Jesus to avoid the cross. You see, Satan didn't stop tempting Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. No, Satan would pop up time and again to continue to do the same thing, to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross. That's what, that's what Satan was doing in the wilderness. All those temptations in the wilderness was for Jesus to use His power, to use His rights as God. What Paul says, Jesus chose to set aside. That He chose not to use to His own advantage. But Satan wanted Him to. To use those things to spare Himself from hunger. To spare Himself from humiliation. To avoid having to die on the cross for our sins. And here, through Peter, was Satan tempting Him to do the same thing. And so just as he did in the wilderness, Peter tells him to leave him alone and go away. And then he rebukes Peter. He rebukes Peter for allowing his own desires to usurp the purpose and will of God. And this is probably the sharpest rebuke Jesus utters to anyone in the Gospels, even the Pharisees. Peter didn't, didn't realize he was allowing Satan to use him to try to usurp the very reason that Jesus came. This is almost like a reversal of what Jesus said about Peter in Matthew. Remember? He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But now Jesus is saying, Peter, when you confessed me as the Messiah, you were thinking the thoughts of God. The Father revealed that to you. But resisting the reason I have come, rebuking me for following the Father's plan means you're no longer thinking Like God, you're thinking like men. People today are just as guilty of imposing their views and their desires on Jesus as Peter was. People today want to read their politics and their lifestyles and their their ideas. They want to read that into Scripture and try to make Jesus say, do, and be things that are contrary to Himself. And imagine how harshly Jesus will rebuke them Because we have the written Word of God so that there's no mistake who Jesus is, what He said, and how we must live for Him. We need to guard our hearts and minds through earnest, humble prayer, through serious study of His Word, through accountability to a church that teaches and preaches the Word of God so that we will think the things of God and not think like the world thinks. As we've seen already, if we're going to follow Christ, the suffering servant who endured rejection and hate and crucifixion at the hands of sinners, then we must expect to face some serious opposition ourselves. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that He already has not done. And that brings us to the third and final thing it takes to follow Jesus. We must commit. We must commit to the call to follow Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 34. It says, He called the crowd to Him along with His disciples and said, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Me and for the Gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Look back at verse 34 again. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus requires self-denial. It requires a willingness to lay down our lives, our wants, our wishes, our plans, to take up our cross and to follow Him. And yes, that means that following Jesus may land us in trouble that might even cost us our lives. And I marvel at the brave men and women throughout history and even today who are willing to face death rather than renounce Jesus. When I read stories like that, I like to think that I would do the same. Don't you? We like to think that we would be willing to lay down our lives in those kinds of circumstances. But if we can't live sacrificially for Jesus today, how could we ever expect ourselves to die for Him tomorrow? Those men and women could face death for Jesus because they'd already died to themselves. They'd already died to this world and to sin and they were living unto Christ As Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If we would follow Jesus, we must be crucified with Jesus. We must allow Jesus to live in and through us. And Paul goes on, or Jesus goes on in verse 35. Look what he says. He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Now, Paul, Jesus isn't saying that we have to literally die for the gospel to be saved, but we must die to self. We must die to sin if we're to live unto Christ. As Paul says in Colossians, set your mind on things above. Think. God's thoughts, not on earthly things. Don't think like men. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And Paul goes on to tell the Colossians that they must put to death their fleshly nature. And then he lists some sinful attitudes and actions and lifestyles like sexual immorality and impurity. Lust and materialism and greed and idolatry. Are you willing to give up those things the world says are good? Are you willing to put to death your fleshly nature? The world says, no, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't repress your desires. If it feels good, do it. You be you. Do what makes you happy. Follow your dreams. Don't let anyone change you. And then it lifts up all sorts of perversities and tells us that these are good things we should be proud of. But Jesus says in verses 36 and 37, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, we have a choice. We can follow the world, what it values, what it tells us to be and do, or we can follow Jesus. If we follow the world... Listen, we're probably going to have fun. It will probably feel good. We'll be accepted and affirmed. We might even find ourselves gaining wealth and fame and power. But at what cost? At the cost of our souls. What would you choose today?
Will you choose to follow the ways of the world? Or will you deny yourself? Take up the cross and follow Jesus. Maybe today you need to be crucified with Christ. Maybe this morning you need to give Jesus your heart, your life, die to this world and its ways, die to your sinful past. That's why I love the picture of baptism. In baptism, it's like we are dying and being buried. We die to our sins. We die to our old selves. We die to our shameful, guilty past. And we are risen, reborn as new creations in Christ Jesus. We're crucified with Christ so He can live through us. Maybe you need to do that today. You need to come and put your hand in the hand of Jesus and say, Jesus, I give you my all. Forgive me of my sins and live through me. When we sing in just a moment, I'll be standing down here. I'd love nothing more than to help you do that today. But perhaps you are a Christian today. But you need to recount the cost. You need to recommit to following Jesus. Because over the years, you've allowed yourself to become, like Jesus says in verse 38, ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. You've allowed yourselves to become like your co-workers and your friends. You've tried to fit in and blend in with people. You've tried to play nice, be woke. You've tried to be tolerant and accepting, and so you've become ashamed of Jesus and what He clearly teaches in His Word. Maybe today, like the prodigal son, no more. I'm going to come home. I'm going to stand firmly. I'm not going to be ashamed of Jesus or His Word because I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. Maybe you need to come today and pray at this altar. Come and I'd be glad to pray with you as you recommit to being a follower of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? Don't rebuke Him like Peter did. Don't rebuke Him, not just with your mouth, but with your lifestyle. We rebuke Jesus when we blend in with the world, when we go along with what they say, when we decide to toe the party line and keep our head down and not make waves. We rebuke Jesus. Jesus, just be like one of the prophets. Come on. Just be a good guy like Elijah or John. Don't ask me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. But how often do we do just that every day? Who do you say Jesus is? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, you give us no wiggle room. Your word is abundantly clear about who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. The Son of the living God who came to suffer and die for our sins that we might be born again and walk in newness of life. Father, forgive us for when we try to water you down and candy coat you and make you easier for people to swallow. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be bold. Help us to shine brightly your gospel truth because it is the truth and it is the loving thing and it is the right way. And it is the only way, truth, and life that we can come to you and experience abundance of life. What the world is selling, that's what's false. That's what's destructive. That's what's a poisoned pill. God, help us to stand firmly and clearly for you because you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God, Jesus. Move and work in our hearts today and when we leave this place, 
that we truly can take up our cross and follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.